Uh, last week, Neil uh, preached from the book of Isaiah uh, a prophecy that Isaiah gave, an oracle that he gave to the people of uh, Israel, letting them know that their exile in Babylon would not be forever. In fact, as crushed and as broken down as they were, God declared to them through the prophet, I am doing a new thing. And the new thing was going to be wonderful, and and it was going to be surprising, and it was going to be uh, fascinating and interesting and shocking and powerful, and it was going to change the lives of Israel. And that new thing did happen, the the return from exile after um, the Babylonian Empire was crushed. And the people of Israel found favor in the sight of the new emperor, and the new emperor restored them to Israel. And yet, Isaiah's oracle about a new thing was, it was a type. It was repeated again in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. God did a new thing. A thing beyond the law. A new thing, grace, a new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ. And Neil said, 2016, too, is a time of a new thing. We don't know what it is yet. In fact, he even asked the congregation, he said to you, please keep your eyes peeled because I don't know what it is. And I need your counsel. I need you to help me identify it. When the new thing comes, I don't want to miss it. And today we're going to talk a little bit about being able to recognize God's light. At the beginning, that might sound a little strange to us. It might sound strange. Well, surely, when God's light comes, it should be obvious to all in its illumination and its power. And I'm going to motivate today the idea that that's not the case. That, in fact, it's a lot easier to miss what God is doing than to seize it and to recognize it. In fact, I'm going to go so far as to argue that sin is such a corrupting and powerful force in life that it blinds us, that it makes it possible for people to look at what is good and call it evil, and look at what is evil and call it good. I'm even going to suggest that we as Christians need to be on guard against that kind of mindset, that inability to perceive what is good and to name it what is not. And then we're going to hear from John, the apostle, in his uh, letter or sermon, 1 John, some guidelines, some, some, some basic parameters for how we as Christians can rightly perceive the light, how we can be not the sort of people who miss it, not the sort of people who, as we've titled here, dark the light, evil the good, bitter the sweet. We're going to hear again from Isaiah today that there are people who dark the light, evil the good, bitter the sweet. And John is going to say, this is the kind of life you live so that you don't fall into those traps. In 2011, um, I was following various blogs um, and and the internet and whatnot, and I came across this very, very uh, troubling a video, and it was a video of a young woman who um, had found herself pregnant, and, and she had an unwanted pregnancy, and um, she was going to have an abortion. But instead of just having the abortion, she was going to live tweet her experience in the clinic, if you can believe that. Um, and, and not just live tweet. Live tweeting is where you send out to the internet all of your feelings and thoughts as something's going on. Um, and so that everyone in the world can experience it. Um, And not only was she going to live tweet it, the reason she was going to live tweet her abortion was because she wanted to celebrate 
um, her freedom uh, as a person. Because for her, she uh, believed, she understood that, that this thing inside of her was, was not a baby. It was, um, in her words, and I'm quoting here, a tapeworm that, was, that had invaded her. And she wanted to celebrate her freedom from this thing, this invader. Moreover, she was very angry. She had a, what she thought of as a, quote, righteous wrath, a righteous anger against all of the, the people and ideas in the world that would suggest to her that this was somehow wrong or shameful or sad even. And so this was her attack, her attempt to do justice, to advocate for the oppressed pregnant women in the world, to bring light to those who were in her situation so that they too could celebrate their freedom. What was so striking to me beyond the, the simple tragedy, I, I've known women who've uh, confided in me over the years uh, that they've had abortions and, and to a person, every single one of them has uh, described the, um, the immense anguish and uh, the, the difficulty, the, the tragedy. Um, she said, I don't even, the, 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 this woman, uh, I, I don't even have a baby inside of me. In fact, it's not a baby until you want it. That was the way she saw the world. That um, this fetus inside of you is, it's cells and it's an organism. But until you want it, until you as a would-be mother want to be a mother, it's not actually a baby. She, she actually makes the world a certain way. That's how she thinks. Um, and, and what so powerfully struck me is that in everything that she was doing, she thought she was bringing light, doing good, advocating for justice for the world. She had a true belief that what I submit to you was evil, was good. Now, we have other examples in our history, if we just think about them. Uh, Nazism is a great example of people who really thought they were ridding the world of evil when they were, in fact, perpetrating it. We might think of slavery. Um, we might think, in contemporary times, probably the greatest danger that we as a, a nation and as a community recognize right now are a group of people who randomly target to murder people in the name of God, Allah. It is the will of God that these random murders happen. These are not people, I submit to you, that, that, that they really truly, at the deepest part of themselves, believe this is good. Now this is, uh, this, this is strange, uh, especially for, um, I'll just bring up my dad here. My dad growing up, most of the time, when we encountered things where we said, that's wrong, he, he would say, this is what he believed, he believed that deep down, in a deep part of yourself, if you're doing sin, you always kind of know that it's sin. If you're really, really honest with yourself, if you're really brutal and you really, you know, focus in, you really honestly know that what you're doing is wrong, no matter what it is. I want to suggest to you today, that's not the case. Oh, actually, you know, you might think um, in the New Testament, when Paul, or Saul at the time, is blinded by the light, and, and, and the Lord Jesus speaks to him and says, you know, Paul, Paul, why do you persecute me? And then eventually says, Paul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. See, the question is, 
when Paul is, you know, going out and stoning Christians, Saul is going out and stoning Christians, and he's doing all these things, does Saul think that what Saul is doing is good deep down? Does he really think he's doing the will of God? Or is he sort of guilty about it, and Jesus just shows up and kind of points that out? When we say Saul is kicking against the goads, is he, is he, does he know what he's doing is wrong, or does he think it is actually right? And what I want to suggest to you today is that there are people for whom the good is evil. They dark the light. They evil the good. They bitter the sweet. And there is a way of seeing the world where you simply do not realize. In your honest assessment of the universe, you really think what you're doing is good when it is, in fact, evil. In your note sheets, we have a text, Isaiah, Isaiah 5, 18 to 21. Let's look through this uh, briefly just to see um, a little bit about what the prophet says. He says, Woe to you who tug at waywardness, waywardness with worthless cords, who drag sin along like a, cor- a cart with ropes, who say, God should hurry. He should speed up his work so we can see it. Let the plan of the Holy One of Israel come quickly so we can understand it. Woe to you who call evil good and good evil, who make darkness into light and light into darkness, who make bitter into sweet and sweet into bitter. Woe to you who are wise in your own eyes and think yourselves so discerning. Let's just reflect a little bit on these images that the prophet gives us. In, in, in 18 and 19, verses 18 and 19, uh, we're, we're confronted with this Im- image of, of, of tug- tugging at waywardness with worthless cords, dragging sin along like a cart with ropes. If you want to know what this, this image is supposed to look like, it looks um, just like when Alice, my daughter, got her first backpack when she was two or three. And what she would do is she got this backpack, it's, uh, it's pink, course, and it was very large on her small body, and she opened it up, and she went around, and she found all of her favorite toys, her most precious toys, every Barbie, and every, I mean, let's be honest, I don't know what they are, they're like bears or whatever, so she stuffs it up with all of these bears, and Barbies, and, and, and harmonicas, and drums, and trumpets, and every, everything she can, she stuffs it so hard, she can't even zip it up. And so she says, Daddy, Daddy, come zip up my backpack. Okay, honey, I'll do it. So I I push it all in, and she's like, oh, here's some more stuff you can fit now. Great. Okay, put that in. We stuff it up until it's bulging, until it's busting at the seams. And then she puts it on, and she falls over, and she's like a turtle. She can't, she's like, can you flip me over? So, okay, I'll flip you over. And then she's dragging it everywhere she goes. She wants to go upstairs, so she's lugging it up the stairs, and her arms are aching. She says, Daddy, Daddy, come save me. Come help me with this load I'm carrying. When are you going to do what you're supposed to do? And I'm looking at Alice, I'm thinking, what are you going to do with all that stuff when you get where you're going? You don't need any of it. This is the image Isaiah gives of those who are dragging their sin. It's not that the sin is like weighing them down, although it is. It's that it's so precious to them, they have to keep dragging it wherever they go. Regardless of the fact that it's no use to them, they, they have to have it. And while they're doing that, they're burdened by this sin, right? They're dragging it and they're burdened. And so they're looking up and they're saying to God, God, you should hurry up. When's your planning and come and liberate me from my bondage? And Isaiah's looking at them and he's saying, let go. Let go of your evil. And you're going to feel a lot more light. 
In the next verses, Isaiah says, Woe to you who call evil good and good evil, who make darkness into light and light into darkness, who make bitter into sweet and sweet into bitter. That language is just fascinating. Who make darkness into light, who make bitter into sweet. You remember the first time you had a cup of black coffee? And it's, it's dangerous too. It's a trap because it smells amazing. Uh, I remember I was maybe in the fourth grade um, and we had to wake up very early uh, to go to an air show where we were making Subway sandwiches. Glenn and Kathy, you were there. And uh, it was like 3.30 in the morning and uh, my mom probably hadn't slept. So very rarely my mother would drink coffee in the morning. So this morning she did. And I remember going downstairs. I was excited. I couldn't wait to get to work. <laughs> I was young and stupid. But uh, at any rate, I was, I was excited, and, 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 she, and I smelled this, and I was like, what is this delightful aroma? And she's like, oh, here, have some. My mom, is, she's a tough woman. She, uh, she doesn't, you know, none of that sugar and, and sweetener that you guys use. No. She, she once told, I was like, I, in high school, I was trying to drink coffee, and I was putting a bunch of stuff in. She's like, uh, Tom, real men take their coffee black. It's like, oh, fantastic. <laughs> Thanks, Mom. <laughs> Black coffee. All right, I learned my lesson. Uh, so I, I, take, I take a sip of it. Blah, this is horrible. I can't believe anyone will put this down their gullet. And yet, and yet, friends, and yet, I know that for those of you who are like me who drink black coffee, you, you battled through, right? The first couple of times, it's so bitter. It's so horrible. And then, then you get the, the caffeine. You're like, oh, I can focus. This is awesome. <laughs> and so then you're like, oh, this is all right. And, and you, you keep working with it. And, and over time, over the, now, now, I mean, this is Costco breakfast blend, so it's like, eh. but boy, I'll tell you what, you go to Pete's and you get that Major Dickinson's blend, ooh, hoo, 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 that is delicious, so creamy, right? I tell you what, you give this to, you know, a fourth grader, even the best at Pete's, even the best, uh, you know, the one, the coffee they make out of the bird poop in South America, or, seriously, it's a thing, well, they, they do that, even that, even the best coffee, uh, your kids are going to blow it out because it's bitter, and yet we, over time, are able, in our minds, in our hearts, we're able to make the bittersweet. We have that power within us. And the prophet says we can't just make bittersweet. We can also turn dark into light. We can also turn evil into good in our hearts. Just like it takes time to get used to coffee, we, as people, can get used to evil until it really is great. In the next verse, verse 21, Woe to you who are wise in your own eyes and think yourselves so discerning. Okay, we all know someone like this. And it's not me, in case you're, in case you're thinking that this is about me, it's not. It might be, maybe, sometimes. I hope it's not. The person who really honestly, deep down, believes that they've got it figured out. Really, that they know what's up. The interesting thing about these people is that it can be blindingly obvious to everyone around them that they are totally wrong, but in their own eyes, in their own view, they have the world sewn up. I have a friend, um, we'll call her Allison. Um, I remember I was in a Bible study once with her, and um, she, uh, she said, I don't understand why you guys can't see the truth. We were um, reading something from the Old Testament. She said, why can't you see the truth? 
every one of us is a worm. He said, I am a worm. God doesn't love me. At best, he ignores me. If he's paying attention, he probably hates me. How can you not see that? Interestingly, if you're like Allison, you can actually read texts in Job that say something like this, although notice that they're put in the mouths of Job's Job's accusers. (laughs) Um, The idea being, though, that that she had internalized at a very deep place, a very deep place that she's a worm, that she is unlovely, she is unwholesome, she is unlovable. The crazy thing is that for Allison, it's not an act. She's not pretending. Uh, she came from a place where um, she'd suffered some abuse uh, from a, um, a male figure in her life when she was very young. And that had probably twisted uh, the way that she'd seen uh, life. She had experienced um, a number of, uh, in, in a number of different ways, abuse and, and, and uh, hate coming from, from men. And she assumed that because she'd heard it in church that God was her, her, her father, And so, like the father that she knew, and like the men that she'd known, she just assumed that she was a worm. But what was so weird about it, is that she was looking around the room being like, you guys are idiots. Because she was wise in her own eyes. She really deeply believed that she sought better than we did. Allison has a happy story. She, did, she no longer believes that she's a worm. She believes that she's the daughter of the most high, the, the good, good father. All this to say that I think that there's a genuine case to be made for the idea that we have in our own capacity as depraved, as perverse people, the ability to honestly, genuinely, truly believe that the evil is the good and the good is the evil. I say this from my own experience because I used to dream in Japanese. Those of you who know, I, I lived in Japan for a couple of years and I remember about 18 months since my experience there, I woke up one morning and I said, what? Because I had just had an entire dream in Japanese. And, and let me tell you, that's very disconcerting because when you're speaking and thinking Japanese, you're speaking and thinking into a whole different universe almost. Because the way they see the world is just different. It's so strange. And it's hard to articulate for those who are not, um, who haven't lived in a, in, in a different culture. Uh, for the, we have some in our congregation who maybe speak Spanish or have lived in, in uh, Hispanic cultures. Uh, that that you, you, you start to see that there's like a different way of doing stuff there. Uh, I, there's a story when I was there in 2004. I think this story made it to the States. Um, at the time we had invaded Iraq and there was this... Um, this children's aid worker who uh, had volunteered at a hospital in Fallujah, and her name was, she was Japanese, her name was uh, Naoko uh, Takata, Takato. And Naoko went over to, um, to Iraq against the, you know, the government recommended don't go, but she did because that's what she did. She, she cared for kids. Um, and she was captured by, uh, by some, some militants there, and the Japanese government had to negotiate to get her back. Well, when I saw the story, I was like, wow, that's so, what, what courage she had to go and, and to, to really honestly risk everything to help these kids. And, and then when she got back, uh, she was forced to, um, to humiliate herself and weeping, begging for the forgiveness of the country because she had shamed it. 
there's, there's a photo of her like bowing deeply. And in, in Japan, the, the deeper you bow, the more you know, self-abasement you're demonstrating. She was like nose to the floor, weeping that the country would forgive her for going to help those kids. That didn't make sense to me unless I was dreaming in Japanese. And I started to think about the world the way the Japanese think about it, where your ties to your culture and, and your social class and your, your, um, your obligations to your, your, your betters and to those around you are paramount. And you should never violate those. And if you do, you're committing a grievous, grievous sin. And only seeing it that way was I able to understand how they could do this to this poor woman who wanted to help some hurting sick kids in a war zone. The point is that the Japanese were able to see this way because they have an entirely different culture, an entirely different language. And it wasn't like they were being dishonest. That's really how they felt. And I wasn't being dishonest. I felt the way I felt. So it is, I suggest to you, possible to be on the side of evil and thinking you're on the side of good. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? In Hebrew, it's like insidious, deceitful, the heart. Cunning. If there's one thing the heart can do, it's fool you. Friends, this is why the conviction of the Holy Spirit is necessary in so many cases because we're so lost in sin and in the wrong way of seeing the world that we need the Spirit to give us the light. Now, if you followed me so far, you know that the really big question is about to hit. If it's possible that I can be so a person can be so consumed by a different way of seeing things in a different world and, and, and dragging their sins so, so, so long and having named evil good so long that they can't even recognize the difference between evil and good anymore. If that's all true, then is it possible that in some way I myself am in that situation? Is it possible that I don't know what's good? I don't know the new thing God is doing because I can't see it. It looks evil to me. It looks bitter to me. Because I don't know what is sweet and what is light. You know, Isaiah was considered a nutbag. The prophet, I mean, here's this guy saying, yeah, you're going to get carted off to Babylon. God's going to bring you back. Uh, everyone looked at him like, God would never give up Jerusalem. You, you, you crazy. Stop. Jesus. Jesus definitely considered a crazy guy. In fact, Jesus was considered a crazy, by, a crazy guy, not just by the Pharisees, but also by his own disciples. Like, time and again, they're like, Jesus, no, what are you doing? And he's like, can you not see? And these are well-meaning, God-fearing people. Well, the good news is that uh, John experienced this very same issue in the church in Ephesus, in the, in the latter part of the first century. And John gave advice to his church, saying, here are some things you can do to make sure you're not in that situation. Here are some things you can do to make sure your eyes rightly perceive the light, that you're not bittering the sweet, you're not darkening the light, you're not eviling the good. In Ephesus, uh, there had been a church of which John was either the pastor or like a leader this is John, the apostle, um, writer of the gospel, who uh, was re kind of retired uh, in Ephesus. In fact, if you go there, you can see they've excavated the baptismal that, that John dunked people in. 
I've seen it. It's awesome. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's very cool. So this is a real historical thing. And uh, for, in First John, what's happened to this church is the church has split. There's been a schism in the church. Because there's some people in the church who are like, ha, 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 we know what's up. We've figured out, we've been given special revelation by God. We know the right things. And this crazy guy, John, and his, peop- his, his people, they're doing it wrong. Come with us. And they left the church, split it apart. And the people in the church are sitting there thinking, how do we know? How do we know that those guys haven't received some new thing from God? How do we know that what, what John's talking about isn't really the case? And so they're caught in this, this quandary. How do we know the light? John writes, this is the message we have heard from him and are announcing to you. God is light. In him, no darkness at all. You might even add, God's the only one who's all light. The only one in whom there's no darkness at all. And then John says, I know those other people. They've said things like this. If we say we have union or fellowship with God, with him, while they were walking in the darkness, they lie. And are not doing the truth. But if we are walking in the light as God himself, Jesus himself is in the light, we have union with one another, fellowship with one another, and Jesus' blood cleanses us from all sin. If those people who left say something like this, if we say we have no sin, we're sinless, John says, you're deceiving yourself. The truth isn't in you. Instead, if you confess your sins... The one who is faithful and just will forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And if some of those people that have left have said something like this, we've never sinned at all. We're perfect. We have it just right. If someone says like that, something like that, they've made God a liar. And his word is not in them. Now, at first glance, some of these things may not sound exactly... Uh, like that, they, they totally um, hit everything that we're talking about. But I want to suggest that, in fact, they do. Um, that every single one of these objections that these people who have left have made are all about, I've got the light, I'm the one who knows what sweet is, I know what good is. When, in fact, they're exactly the opposite. And if we look at them, I think we can see um, where they're going wrong. The first claim that they make in verse 6 We have union with God and yet walk in darkness. Did you you notice in verse uh, 7 what it is um, that John says, oh, this is how you know you're walking in the light. It's it's, it's so cool. He says, but if if we're walking in the light, and we're not actually in the darkness, if we're walking in the light as Jesus himself is in the light, we have union with one another. The Greek word there is koinonia. It's the word that we get community or fellowship or deep intimacy. If you're really in the light, friends, you're going to be living in deep intimacy with the people in your church. It's just going to happen. You can't be in the light and not be in intimacy with the people in your church. Uh, For those of you who have experienced a church split, I suggest to you that when a church splits very often, uh, people probably on both sides are not in the light. Because if you're really in the light the way Jesus is in the light, you're going to have this unity. How does that unity come about? Well, it comes about because people are living the way that Christians are supposed to live. Community doesn't happen unless there's things like forgiveness and generosity. It doesn't happen unless there's things like a welcome and a kindness and a bit of grace for the people who are off their rocker. 
It's true. You can't have a community like the one we have right here unless you're willing to put up with a couple of crazy people. And you know what? And you know what? Even love them in their craziness. And if you can do that, if you can do that, you're going to find that you have a community that is truly robust, truly intimate. But if you don't have that, that's a really good hint that you've gone off the wire. That you're no longer in the light, no matter how intimate your experiences with God are personally. If you're not getting along with the one next to you in the pew, you're deceiving yourself. If you have that union, uh, John says, it's just, um, it's just like when the blood of Jesus, the Son of God, cleanses you from sin. This image is drawn from the Old Testament um, because the priest would come, and when the high priest on the Day of Atonement was walking in, the priest, like the holiest guy ever, had to wash himself like seven times. He had to constantly be purifying himself. And then what he would do is he would take the blood of a goat and he would speckle it. Like that. And everything that the blood hit became holy, became pure. The blood was sort of like a spiritual uh, cleanse, cleansing unit, a spiritual 409, if you will. And so the, 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 the priest would do that. And when you're living in this unity with other people, when that's where you are, you are experiencing that sprinkling of Jesus' blood all over you. And you are becoming holy, perfect, ready for temple worship. What does it mean if you're the kind of person who doesn't live in that kind of community? You don't do those things, that forgiveness and, and, and hospitality and kindness and generosity uh, and grace. What kind of person lives like that? I'll tell you what kind of person lives like that. A person who's selfish, who's me, 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 me. Because when you're me, 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 you don't have time for the person next to you. That, that benighted woman with her, with her tapeworm. What was she concerned about? I didn't want this. I'm not ready for this. I've got plans. I can't be bothered. Friends, people who dark the light, the ones who evil the good, the ones who, fun, who uh, bitter the sweet, are fundamentally, and this is in your note sheet, self-centered that's why they don't have union with anybody, but it's just them and God. They don't have union with the community of faith because they're self-centered. They're ruled by their pride. But this, this is also lower in your note sheet. People who live in the light have and maintain deep intimacy with others in the community of faith. If you have intimacy with the people in the community of faith, then you are guarded, protected against being the kind of person who evils the good, darks the light, bitters the sweet. The next thing that these schismatics have said in John, these people who've left, they said, they said, oh, oh, we're sinless. We have no sin. Now that might sound to us a little bit ridiculous because we believe things like all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So let me paraphrase it into a little more 21st century terms and then maybe you'll share it a little bit more, the pull of the, of the, the, the claim. We're right with God. We're in God's will. We're living a good life. We hear that, right? People who are like, look, basically you take the world and like, this is where you're supposed to be on the path. I'm on it. I've got it figured out. I know what the world's like and I'm, I'm doing it. I'm doing it right. 
This is the claim of these people who've left. You, John, you're off the path. You've missed the mark. You don't know what you're doing. We've got it figured out. We know where we're going and how to get there. We're living a good life. You know who else says this? People who say something very similar. Um, the, uh, when, when, you, when you dump your significant other, right? You, you sit down on the edge of the bed and you hold her hands and you look deeply into her eyes, into her eyes and you say, I just need you to know, I'm not the problem here. Right? Dot, dot, dot. And what follows that? <laughs> You're the problem. Peace. See ya. Out of my life. No, seriously. Think about it. When, you, when you're in a relationship, right? And, and, it, and look, you're like, I'm, I've got things figured out. I'm living the right way. I know. And yet the world's messed up. And so I know the problem isn't me. So it must be everybody else. Right? I know I've got it figured out. So everybody else must be the one, ones who are off their rockers and they've gone off crazy. And if people could just get in line with how I do things, we'd have it all figured out. This is what it means to say we are sinless. Because everybody knows the world's messed up. And if you say I'm the one who's doing it right, you're implying that everybody else is the problem. Listen to what John says to that. So, you know, uh, verse 8, we have no sin. We deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. Verse 9, John says, this is what we ought to do. Confess your sins. The one who is faithful and just will forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. The first assumption is not, I'm not the problem. The first assumption is, I'm definitely the problem, or at least a big part of it. The first assumption is, this heart isn't clean. It's not sinless. It's not perfect. This heart is messed up. Now, I, you know, you can get, you can get a lot, really far in your life being like, well, I confessed. I confessed that I was, you know, just a little, I made a little mistake. But God, seriously, deep down, we kind of both know I'm, I'm awesome. Like, I've had those prayers. <laughs> God, uh, <laughs> okay, I probably had, you know, maybe 50 calories too many. But overall, I mean, you're welcome. Uh, John, John's saying, John's saying, no, 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 no. Get serious about your heart. Like, get serious. Like, look down deep. I bet you, I bet you you're pretty selfish. Um, I don't, I don't like to let, um, or I like to make sure that Alice takes a nap every day that I'm watching her. Because I'm obviously really concerned that she's, you know, growing up right and is healthy and gets to sleep. No! No, it's because I need peace and quiet for 90 minutes, two hours. And so she's like, I don't want to go to bed. I'm fine. Please. Like, lay down. Sleep. I'm so, literally, I'm sitting there like reading a book like, oh, and just waiting for her to pass out. Be like, yes. I, look, I'd like to think that part of it is so that she's in, in good shape. But really, a big deal is I need my time. I might still be a little self-centered. This is in your note sheets. People who dark the light, evil, the good, bitter, the sweet, never th- think that they're the problem. They never think they're the problem. People who live in the light a little bit lower have sin to confess and confess it. Have sin to confess and confess it. The last thing that the people, the schismatics have said, they said, we've never sinned. We've never done it. 
Yeah, this, this is basically, I mean, you could put this another way. You could say, we've never needed to have a conversion. We've never needed to convert. We've never, there's no reason. Why bother? Why is that? Well, um, I suggest to every single one of you here, you've all uh, been converted in one way or another. One way I know, or I'm 95% certain that everyone here has been converted, is that you've been educated. Right? You've gone to school, and you've been educated. Education is a kind, not a spiritual, but a kind of conversion. Okay? Because you start out this way, thinking these things, having these thoughts, and you end up over here. So you've been here, and then your conversion changes you into a new person. Um, education assumes that you start out as defective. You don't know how to read, you don't know how to do your math, you don't know how to do a lot of things. You don't know how to interpret, you don't know how to understand. And through the process of education, ideally, you're going to go from here and get to here. You're going to be converted. As a teacher, I've noticed the only students that I can never get through to, that I can never teach, are the ones who know the material better than I do. I get there and I'm like, so here's some stuff that um, you know, we, we look at in theology and they're like, oh yeah, that's pretty basic. Can you move on? I'm like, all right, okay. And you know, I, I let them do their thing, but I can guarantee you that they enter the class, they take the class, they do their stuff, and they don't change a bit. Because why bother? I mean, what am I? What do I know, right? These people who've never sinned, they've never needed Jesus to come. You know, John calls the coming of Jesus as the light coming into the world. These people's world was already bright because they had the light of themselves to illuminate everything. And what do you need a savior for? What do you need God to come in and change things when you've already got it all figured out? These are the Israelites who knew what God wanted and did not need Moses' law. These are the Pharisees who knew what the law said and and knew how to do it and didn't need the grace of Jesus Christ. And this is those of us who walk in and throughout life and don't need to learn a new thing. These are the people who approach life from a place of pride and arrogance. John says, if you think this, this is verse 10, we have never sinned, you make God a liar. Why? Because God is the one who said, I have sent my light into the world. And that implies that you were dark and you needed it. People who dark the light and evil the good and bitter the sweet have never needed, this is in your note sheets, to learn or convert. Learn or convert. Below, people who live in the light know that they've needed conversion in the past and live, this is in your note sheets, humble, teachable lives as a result. Humble, teachable lives as a result. Friends, the bottom line is that as we're walking into the new year, there is a danger, and there is a danger that our eyes have been shaded, that we've been benighted, that we are in some place that's analogous or similar to the place of that, of that woman um, with, with her tapeworm where we are unable to perceive the good as the good. We are unable to perceive or recognize the new thing God is doing as the new thing God is doing. And John is saying, if you want to avoid that, if you want to have the best shot to be able to recognize what God is doing in the world and in your life, this is who you got to be. You have got to be a person who maintains deep intimacy with others in the community of faith. 
You must confess your sin. You've got to have sin to confess. You've got to really recognize it. And then you've got to confess it to God. And then you have to approach the world in a humble, teachable manner. And in so doing, you'll be the sort of person who's able to perceive when the good is the good and the evil is the evil. You'll be able to recognize the light is light and not, not the dark. And you will taste bitter for bitter and sweet for sweet. God is doing a new thing, friends. And that is the way that we can prepare ourselves. I heard it once like this. We, this is no guarantee, friends. No guarantee that we'll recognize everything just right. and We'll be perfect in our ability to, to, to see. But it is, it is as if you're, you're there and, you're, and you're, you're making sparks. Right? And you're making sparks. Well, you can make sparks all day long. But if you don't have wind to come and light the flame, it's, it's not going to take off. Well, friends, this is the way we light the sparks. We live this way and we're lighting sparks saying, God, we want to see your new thing. We want to see your new thing. We want to recognize you. We want to recognize you. And then that's when God comes in. That's when God comes in in his holy wind. The spirit comes and makes the new thing light up into a flame. Our job, our job is to be the sparks, to live lives of intimacy in the community, to have sin to confess, to confess it, and to live humble, teachable lives. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we will be the sort of people who do not dark the light, evil the good, or bitter the sweet. That instead, God, we will be the kind of people who light the light, good the good, and sweet the sweet. Give us your vision. Make us people who are intimately connected to our community of faith. Make us people who know our sin, who confess it in a deep way. And give us that humble, teachable attitude in which we're able to see and clearly perceive what you're doing. We, we give this, this year to you, God, uh, this year in our church, this year in our lives, in our families, in our country. We hand it over to you when we ask you for a new thing. God, give us the eyes to see it. In your son's name we pray, amen.